Hello, everyone. I am Major Justin Command, and welcome to another episode of Battlefield Next, a podcast devoted to the application of law to the future of armed conflict. The military is full of attention-grabbing doctrinal buzz phrases that seem to define a generation of soldiers. From COIN to LISCO to multi-domain operations and the ever-popular speed of relevance. Today, I am excited to announce the start of our multi-port series on another one of those buzzwords, interoperability. Simply put, interoperability is the measure of a bunch of different organizations to act together. For our series, we'll travel virtually around the world, focusing on interoperability as it pertains to our international partners and allies. Today, join us as we head to the Joint Multinational Readiness Center in Hohenfels, Germany. Good morning, everyone, and thanks again for joining us. Today marks the start of a series on interoperability focused on how we train units to work alongside international partners and allies. For the U.S. military, this means heavily relying on the Joint Multinational Readiness Center, or JMRC, in Hohenfels, Germany, including during large exercises such as Allied Spirit. So today I have the honor and privilege of uh, welcoming two experts in this field uh, to help us bring to life the role of JMRC uh, and some of those exercises. So, so I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Jan Gancho and Major Jason Young. So gentlemen, uh, good morning. And, and I'm wondering if you could start by just introducing yourselves uh, to our audience, a little bit about who you are uh, and your current role. So uh, Jason, Major Young, uh, I'll start with you. Yeah, thank you, and, and good morning. Uh, I'm privileged to be here as well, and I'm excited to uh, discuss legal interoperability and the Joint Multinational Readiness Center. Um, as mentioned, my name is Major Jason Young. I'm the Senior Legal Observer, Controller, and Trainer, OCT, at the Joint Multinational Readiness Center in Hohenfels, Germany, in beautiful Bavaria. Previously, I was the Chief of Military Justice at the 10th Mountain Division and a Brigade Judge Advocate for 1st Brigade, 10th Mountain Division, and a Brigade Judge Advocate for the 210th Field Artillery Brigade. Uh, so the, this job requires a lot of operational experience. Uh, and one of the, the main things that we do in this position is help train uh, our allies and partners and our U.S. Uh, Brigade Judge Advocates on the application of law, the law of armed conflict and large-scale combat operations. Thanks, Jason. And Dr. Gansho, uh, I'll turn to you. If you could just uh, introduce yourself a bit to, to our audience. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jan Gansho. I'm a civil servant with the German Armed Forces Legal Service, having served as law teacher, as legal advisor, and military prosecutor on several levels of command and been deployed to missions abroad. I'm a fully trained lawyer, I wrote a PhD thesis on the law of armed conflict and hold an LLM in international law and politics. I was a regular soldier for some years and pursued a reserve officer career, having exercised as a platoon officer, a platoon leader, company commander, and an S3 uh, staff officer. And so I hold the rank of lieutenant colonel in the German active reserve. And I am a German exchange officer here at the Judge Advocate General Legal Center and School. And I am with the Center for Law and Military Operations here. And here I am the Action Officer for Multinational Operations and Interoperability. 
And Dr. Gancho, I'm just wondering if you could just tell us a bit about how you came to Charlottesville. Is that a position that's well advertised uh, amongst the uh, German armed forces or, or was it something that kind of fell into your lap? Oh, yes. Uh, good question. Um, thanks for this. It's uh, it's unfortunately been vacant for some years now, this position. Germany hasn't manned this position, even while it's uh, perceived as being, a, so to say, a strategic asset for the German armed forces legal service and um, I was made aware of this fact that this position is vacant uh, some months prior to my deployment here eight months ago and uh, of course this is a unique opportunity not only to enhance um, personal capabilities professional capabilities uh, starting with the language capacity but also to get the bigger picture of operational law because if you have served at the tactical level at the operational level and at the strategic level with your own national legal services for your armed forces then it's of course uh, really exciting to get the bigger picture of um, a different armed forces legal service like the jack corps yeah, and uh, the united states is our biggest and i would say most important military ally and to have the privilege and the honor to, to serve here as an exchange officer and to create these synergy effects between our legal services, that's just a chance you, you don't want to miss. And so I was, was happy to apply for this uh, assignment and, yeah, was taken in. Thank you, gentlemen, both. Uh, one easy question I also like to start off with is, is where's home for both of you? So uh, where are you from originally, Jason? Uh, from Danville, Illinois, farm yeah. country, nothing yeah. but corn and soybeans. Okay, I'm I'm a Chicago guy, so I know a little bit about Danville, but it's uh, two different parts of Illinois, right? Uh, Dr. Gansha, where are you from originally? Yeah, originally I come from Hamburg in northern Germany, and that's also where I wrote my PhD. I lived there many, many years, have many friends there, and it's a beautiful city. The city with the most bridges, by the way, in Europe, more than Venice. Um, and I can only invite everybody to join this wonderful city. Hamburg's now officially on my list. Uh, we're going to turn a bit to the substance of why we're here. And we're going to start with a bit of a discussion on on the Readiness Center in Hohenfels. And, and Major Young, you, know, you worked there, senior uh, OCT. Um, I always thought Hohenfels was such a beautiful space. Unless, of course, you were actually the unit that was in the box, right? So it was two different perspectives. Uh, but, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what is JMRC and, and, and what is your mission there? Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, the Joint Multinational Readiness Center is the Europe-based uh, combat training center. We have a worldwide mobile training capability. Uh, we train leaders, staffs, uh, and units up to the brigade combat team level and multinational partners to dominate in the conduct of unified land operations anywhere in the world now and in the future. And you are correct. Uh, we purposely make Albertshof less beautiful than the rest of Bavaria to ensure that when rotational training units arrive uh, to the area, they're excited to get out into the box and conduct live force-on-force -force operations. You know, one of the things that I didn't realize about JMRC until I arrived here as a senior uh, OCT um, is just how much interoperability we do here. 
uh, you know, in in some ways, you know, our mission statement says that we're up uh, that we train units up to a brigade combat team size, um, but we do much more than that. We often have division level uh, units here. Um, acting as the HICON and conducting a CPX. And we often have two other brigade combat teams here uh, conducting CPXs from outside the box. Yeah, and that's a that's a, a good uh, a good point, right? Is we see we often think of JMRC as this as a I guess a smaller training center and, and focused on the brigade, but 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 I think to your point it's important to remember that that so much more goes into it than that 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 individual uh, exercising brigade. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. So, you know, because we have the ability, as we all know, with COVID experience to do so much simulated and virtual. And so we're doing that now where we have the CP, the two CPX brigades and then a division headquarters. Um, so, I mean, it's really a mini warfighter uh, from my experience um, because we're providing uh you know, liaison packages and OCTs to help the CPX brigades in the division. And we've well. mentioned the the term a few times already, and I just want to uh, take a moment to explain it for for those in the audience that may not be familiar. But but an OCT, what is an OCT, and, and what is your role? And then maybe secondly, what what specifically does a legal OCT focus on? Right. So um, OCTs are observer controller uh, trainer. Um, or observer coach trainer, depending on uh, what doctrine you look at. Uh, but the purpose is all the same. Um, we are here to um, observe the training units, uh, to help coach them, teach them, mentor them. But also the controller aspect where, where that word comes in is we have to, to make sure that everyone is safe as well. And as you can imagine, when uh, you're inside a small training area and you have Abrams and Bradleys rolling around, um, in the terrain, it can get dangerous pretty quickly. Uh, so, so we operate across. Uh, we have a brigade staff team here. It's called the Mustang team. We have three maneuver battalion teams: uh, Panther, Warhog, um, and Timberwolf. We have a brigade engineer battalion team, the Raptor team. We have an aviation team, the Falcon team. Um, we have a special forces team, the the Wolverine team. We have a Brigade Support Battalion team, the Adler team. So every warfighting function and every specialty MOS is captured, um, and we provide you know premier um, support and coaching uh, to those organizations as we prepare them um, to conduct large-scale combat operations. Or here at JMRC, we still prepare people to conduct um, real-world uh, deployments. And as the senior legal OCT, uh, what's your focus in in that realm? Right, so I'm focused on training U.S. judge advocates and legal advisors from our allies and partners on the law of armed conflict in a complex, dynamic, and highly realistic decisive action training environment. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we also train brigade legal sections for real-world deployments, and one of our re reoccurring real-world de deployments is the NATO mission in Kosovo under the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1244. We have two uh, two rotations that come through here a year um, that deploy over to, to Kosovo to help keep the the peace between uh, Serbia and, and Kosovo. What does a what does a typical month look like for an OCT? Because it's a little bit different than than your nine to five, I would imagine. Right. So when we're in rotation, it's it's really 24 seven. Um, our exercises are anywhere from nine to 14 X days. 
uh, and X days are when the live force on force training is occurring. Uh, but we also have, you know, um, A days, R days, um, you know, A days are before the exercise, R days are recovery uh, days after the exercise. And during, the, during those times, while we may not be 24 seven still, we're doing things like, um, helping the brigade uh, with the military decision-making process cycle uh, before they get into the box. You know, how are they going to uncoil when they get into the box? For the lawyers, that's an especially important time because that's their first opportunity to analyze the order, to understand the road to war. How did we get here for this exercise? Um, and uh, and then help the brigade understand what their authorities and responsibilities are um, going forward. So for legal operations, much more early, um, intense focus in the early preparation phase. Uh, and then, um, you know, you're in current operations in the execution phase. And then on the recovery timeline, that's when all the coaching and mentorship occurs. Um, so yeah, for when we're in a rotation, you're probably talking uh, 21 to 28 days of pretty, pretty long hours, if not 24/7 Thank you, operations. Thank uh, you, Jason, for for, for talking us through that a bit and, and giving us a little bit of the background on on, on one of our our premier training centers across the military. Um, so now I, I want to turn a bit, and and I'll come back to you, Jason, to to ask a little bit about JMRC's impact on interoperability. Uh, really the the, the reason for this series and this this podcast series uh, uh, to discuss interoperability. Um, but before I do that, I, I'm going to turn to Dr. Gancho and 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 uh, he's going to explain to us a little bit about what is interoperability and 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 what is legal interoperability and and, and really why is it important. So, Dr. Gancho, if you could take us a bit through your perception and view of interoperability. Yeah, of course. Um, let's start with a political or rather super strategic level and then come from that to the more concrete aspects of interoperability and specifically on legal interoperability. Uh, I'd like to open my elaborations here by quoting uh, the 2018 National Defense Strategy of the United States, where it says, quote, in the decades after fascism's defeat in World War II, the United States and its allies and partners constructed a free and open international order to better safeguard their liberty and people from aggression and coercion. Although this system has evolved since the end of the Cold War, our network of alliances and partnerships remain the backbone of global security." Quote end. And here we have already the most important notions, allies and partners and alliances and partnerships. And these alliances and partnerships materialize in a multitude of ways across the whole DIMFIL spectrum or DIMFIL. Um, this is the, the abbreviation for diplomatic, information, military, economic, financial, intelligence and law spheres in the reality. And for all these dimensions, interoperability is of the essence, in a, at least in a globalized world, provided you want to bring an alliance or partnership really to life, you need to have interoperability. This is a very important tool in the toolbox and as we will see also in the legal advisor toolbox. So to my understanding, this podcast is about the military and the legal dimfil spectrum. And even while interoperability is also a national issue, um, I, I remember very vividly 
in front of my inner eye, so to say, the um, issue with the East Coast and West Coast Marines that was described quite interestingly in Evan Wright's fantastic book Generation Kill on the 2003 Iraq War, where um, a Marine sniper or scout platoon had uh, difficulties with interoperability because they had different radios than their Marine uh, comrades from, from the other coast. And uh, But this, well, I don't want to dive too much into this now. I just want to say that, of course, interoperability is not I only think, a multinational, but a also a national point, issue. Right? That, that interoperability on its own as a term, as a phrase, simply means the ability of things, organizations, people to, to work together, right? And then we put meaning onto that, whether it's at the tactical, operational, or, or strategic level, or whether it's uh, with technology, or whether it's simply with human interaction, or whether it's strategic with allied partners. I think it's very important to know that interoperability exists uh, at all levels. Absolutely. And it, I would even go so far to say it, it, ex it exists in, in your own little office space uh, amongst some uh, collaborators, uh, whether the people are interhumanly interoperable. But again, that's that's a whole different topic. Here for us, it's most important, first and foremost, uh, to focus on multinational operations because inter interoperability is the big topic there, I would say. And so for the military dimension uh, the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff publication 316, Multinational Operations, lays out the fundamentals of multinational operations. That is, multinational operations are conducted by forces of two or more nations, of course, usually undertaken within the structure of a coalition or alliance. And other possible arrangements include supervision by an international organization such as the United Nations, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or for Europe particularly important, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. Alliance warfare, coalition warfare, and partner warfare is the reality of modern warfare today. But uh, its operational benefits can also lead to multiple legal challenges, example giving different legal regimes to be observed by the force in a certain area of operations or, and that is example giving what the International Committee of the Red Cross is so concerned about, allegedly to a lack of legal accountability, uh, even to a legal vacuum they claim, uh, but I would actually say that this is impossible dogmatically, what they probably mean is more an accountability deficit or bringing to justice deficit. Now, anyway, multinational operations, military multinational operations of recent decades have shown that the tenets of multinational operations are just like in a marriage, I would even say, mutual respect, report, knowledge of partners, patience, mission focus, team like building, that. I think that's, that's trust, probably my next and paper, confidence. My of course, paper is going to be uh, marriage and interoperability, the, the similarities. So I, I appreciate it, <laughs> Dr. Gesha. Yeah, absolutely. So while these tenets cannot guarantee success, ignoring them may indeed lead to mission failure due to a lack of unity of effort and cohesion. And it is often much about pre-legal national and organizational norms of culture, language, and communication that affects 
multinational force interoperability. And legal interoperability is only a small, but of course very important part of that. So commonly used terms under the multinational rubric include allied, bilateral, coalition, combined or multilateral or partnered. However, within this podcast here, the term multinational will be used to describe all of these actions. And there are two primary forms of multinational partnership. The joint force commander and his or her legal advisor will most likely encounter in an area of operations. That is either or for a mission as a whole. That is either a an alliance, that is the relationship that results from a formal agreement between two or more nations for broad, long-term objectives that further the common interests of the members, or b a coalition, which is usually an arrangement between two or more nations for common action. And coalitions are typically ad hoc as opposed to an alliance. They're formed by different nations often with different objectives, usually for a single problem or issue, while addressing a narrow sector of common interest. The operations conducted within, with units from two or more coalition members are usually referred to as coalition operations. But there is, of course, also coalitions like um, the APCANS Army Program, the American, British, Canada, Australian, New Zealand Army's program, which dates back until 1947 and is a standing coalition of the so-called Five Eyes. And I've had the privilege to work together with the APCANs um, in the missions where I was deployed. But uh, as a German, you're not part of the Five Eyes, of course. Um, and I don't look with envy, but with some sort of um, awe to this uh, coalition which has achieved quite a lot. But I, I, I get distracted. Um, uh, the essence of my findings here as um, the Center for Law and Military Operations Action Officer for Multinational Operations and Interoperability is that the United States Armed Forces Joint Chiefs of Staff, they recognize that interoperability greatly enhances multinational operations through the ability to operate in the execution of assigned tasks. And nations whose forces are interoperable across material and non-material capabilities can operate together effectively in numerous ways. For example, as part of developing partner nation security forces, the extent of interoperability can be used to gauge the effectiveness of security cooperation and security force assistance activities. And although frank frequently identified with technology, important areas of interoperability may include doctrine, procedures, communications, training, and now it comes the legal domain. And we experience this even more intense in the legal environment of large-scale combat operations, which are usually conducted in an international armed conflict legal regime. But I think we will come to that later when we talk about LISCO exercise Allied Spirit 22. So much about interoperability as such overall. Now, allow me briefly to talk a little bit about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in this context, 
since NATO is essentially mainly about interoperability of its 30 member states armed forces. And just take a look at NATO's eastern flank, and I can only uh, recommend everybody to go on the website of NATO, nato.int, I-N-T. Um, there you have a very topical map of NATO's eastern flank, dated 21st March 2022, where we see that 40,000 troops are under direct NATO command at NATO's eastern flank, and approximately 100,000 United States troops are deployed to Europe. We have there 130 Allied aircraft at high alert, 140 Allied ships at sea, and everybody who follows only a little bit the news knows that on 24th of March this year, the NATO heads of states and governments decided to prop up NATO's eastern flank by establishing four new battle groups there. That is one in Slovakia, one in Hungary, one in Romania and one in Bulgaria. So uh, we already have with enhanced forward presence the, the tripwire battle groups in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland. And you see there then that we have from these 30 NATO nations, approximately 25 NATO nations uh, deployed to these countries. Uh, but I don't mean deployed in the military legal technical term, but uh, that these troops contingents are there, present there. So we need to have these troops interoperable. Uh, these, all these air forces, these navies, armies, space and cyber forces must be able to conduct the full range of NATO's missions, that is from low to high intensity combat, including missions designed to deter conflict. And at the extreme, NATO forces may be required to engage in war fighting against well-resourced opponents with technologically advanced weapon systems and equipment. And NATO forces should therefore be prepared, equipped and trained for the most complex and demanding of high-intensity warfighting operations in order to wreak havoc on the enemy. And NATO acknowledges that and stresses that interoperability is the key consideration for an effective alliance, alliance warfighting force. And it is an agreed NATO term, interoperability, and it means to be able to act together coherently, effectively and efficiently to achieve allied tactical, operational and strategic objectives. And I, I come to an end with my elaborations on interoperability as such. Uh, and I don't want to say it's a, it's a no-brainer, but probably it's clear that the effectiveness of allied forces in peace, crisis or in conflict depends on the ability of the forces provided to operate together coherently, effectively and efficiently. So allied joint operations should be prepared for, planned and conducted in a manner that makes the best use of the relative strengths and capabilities of the forces that members offer for an operation. So I was reminded when I thought about what I just said on a conversation I had with a German two-star general a commander of a multinational force on a mission abroad 
who quoted the Oracle of Delphi in ancient Greece, um, which uh, said, know yourself, in German, erkenne dich selbst, which is the prerequisite for interoperability. You need to know your own forces, and I'm sure there is a Sun Tzu or a Clausewitz quotation that is just likewise, because every military commander knows that interoperability of formations and units of a joint and multinational force has three dimensions. That is the technical dimension, for example, hardware and systems, the procedural dimension, that is doctrines and procedures, and the human dimension, like language, terminology and training. And forces commit to information sharing through the lessons learned process, in particular lessons about interoperability shortfalls, and that's also what we do here at the Center for Law and Military Operations. We, we gather lessons identified and then process them into lessons learned. And standardization agreements, the famous NATO Stanex, are also there. They are vital to long-term effectiveness and to the success of NATO operations. And at the operational level, emphasis should be placed on integrating the, contri the contributing nation's forces and the synergy that can be attained. The success of the process will then determine the ability of a joint force to achieve its commander's objectives. Okay, that was a very long explanation, I think. Um, and last but not the least, allow me to, to say that NATO doctrine as a common language for our, our operations within the NATO framework is essential to interoperability. Accepted and applied doctrine is necessary for effective coalition building. And at the intellectual level, where we are currently, I would say, doctrine allows commanders from different nations to apply a common approach to operations, while at the procedural level, it enables allied forces to operate together For example, land forces from one nation can request and direct air support from another, and so on and so on. So again, this was a rather lengthy part, but I'm sure that we need all that to have a sound basis and a common ground for our endeavoring together on our journey here now into the and legal sir, uh, aspects Before of we turn to that, that legal uh, portion of interoperability, um, can I just ask you understanding that there is this common language uh, and, and that is the goal is, is to have doctrine serve as a basis for a common language um, do you still feel from your perspective that there is a different view of interoperability between the US and and, and Germany or, or are we are we getting closer to this this true common language of, of interoperability yeah good question good question um, well you know As we already, as you already said, uh, interoperability has many faces, the technical sides, and I already mentioned here the different dimensions. And of course, the military, as such, is very well aware of the fact that interoperability is a key factor for mission and operational success. But my impression is um, for the legal service of armed forces and. Of Well, I'm not officially speaking here for the German Armed Forces Legal Service, but what I know and I also know of other European legal services, 
the legal interoperability is still a pretty um, underdeveloped field. So I think there can be a lot of really good work done. Um, we, we, c we could achieve a lot, and I will elaborate on that uh, further when, when we come to legal interoperability, but uh, suffice to say that probably the United States Armed Forces Legal Service, the JAG Corps, has, to my understanding, the most sophisticated, the most developed doctrine well, on Dr. legal Gasser, interoperability. Thank you for taking us through just, just the background on interoperability and, and what is it and, and how do we define it and how do we get after uh, a common understanding uh, between you know upwards of, of 30 nations or, or, or more. Um, so turning then to legal interoperability, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about Know, what is it? And, and, and again, it's, it's important. Right, yeah. What is legal interoperability? And uh, yeah, it was also pretty new to me when I started here as action officer with Clemo. Um, well, first a little bit of background again, which is required simply to not have low resolution thinking and some sort of tunnel vision on one piece of this interoperability puzzle, but to get the bigger picture somehow. Um, the 2018 National Defense Strategy of the United States and the subsequent Army Strategy and Vision reoriented the U.S. Army to build a force by 2028 capable of deploying, fighting, and winning across multiple domains as part of a combined force in high-intensity warfighting to deter conflict and compete against great powers and regional actors. And we see here that shift from COIN, counterinsurgency, to large-scale combat operations. Um, and we will talk about that in the next episodes further, I guess. But as the Army continues to train and fight with allies and partners, the JAG Corps must focus on strengthening alliances and partnerships with legal professionals from other armed forces too by focusing on improving interoperability. So that is one aspect why I am here too to further this interoperability, in this case between our nations. And the objective of interoperability here is to ensure that the US Army is ready to deploy, fight and win as part of a joint and multinational force across the range of military operations and against the full spectrum of threats around the world. So in this context, the Jack Core Legal Center, um, i.e., to my understanding, the think tank, so to say, of the Jack Core, is of the conviction that the Jack Core must work in common cause with allies and partners to organize, train, and facilitate the employment of capabilities and methods across domains, environments, and functions to contest and compete with adversaries in competition below armed conflict and, when required, defeat them in large-scale, high-intensity armed conflict. So the personnel and capabilities that allies and partners provide are critical to the success of any such mission and act as a military force multiplier to enable mission success of the combined force. So here we are again with multinational operations, and I would say so far so good. 
Um, I mean, it's pretty clear, I would say, that no two states have identical national laws. Even our understanding and application of the law of armed conflict, that is the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols, and probably the Hague Regulations 4 being the cornerstone, uh, well, these applications and the understanding of that, these core codifications, are not uniform. And as uh, judge advocates and legal advisors, we have a central role in identifying and understanding the relevant national positions within combined forces, the implication for the force, and advising how to minimize the operational or tactical impact in order to ensure mission accomplishment. And I already mentioned NATO's standardization agreements, the STANACs, which are indeed a great tool to accomplish interoperability. However, they require a lot of knowledge on the part of each party to enable adjustments to ensure that they can work together. But there is no STANAC, no standardization agreement, agreement sorry, uh, within NATO for the application of law within NATO. There is, however, a STANAC on the law of armed conflict training, setting out common standards to achieve and measure performance. And I myself worked and uh, uh, on in this working group to build this STANAC. And in addition to this, NATO member states have adopted the extensive standardization agreement 2597 on NATO rules of engagement training. Now that we have taken a closer look at interoperability as such and prepared some little bit of its legal specifics, let's bring two legal center products in focus, into focus, because they are I would say the cornerstones of the Jack Core uh, doctrine on legal interoperability. That is the first, the Judge Advocate General Legal Center and School Handbook on Legal Interoperability, which everybody can download from the Judge Advocate General Legal Center and School website, and the Tactical Smart Book on Legal Interoperability. Um, the beauty is that there is they are a whole they are indeed plethoras on legal interoperability. So um, we lawyers, we love definitions. And I, I guess that is because as the German philosopher, I think it was Arthur Schopenhauer, it might have been Georg Hegel, who both lived in the 18th and 19th century. They, they said, one of them said at least, um, that you can only have a fruitful, meaningful discussion when you have defined the terms before that discussion, prior to that discussion. And so you will find the legal interoperability definition within these doctrinal handbooks. And let me quote this definition briefly. Legal interoperability is the achievement of shared understanding of respective authorities, permissions, restrictions, obligations and interpretations of international and domestic law and policy that enables the combined force to act together lawfully, coherently, effectively and efficiently to achieve tactical, operational and strategic objectives. So in that respect, 
legal interoperability is supposed to facilitate lawful mission accomplishment by supporting combined force commanders so that they are ready to deploy, fight and win as part of a multinational force across the range of military operations and against the full spectrum of threats around the world. And so here we see that interoperability is not an end in itself, but it is a tool from the legal advisor's toolbox to better enable the mission and uh, possibly also to erect a legal firewall for the commander and the force. And I already talked about the three dimensions of interoperability and applied to legal interoperability, to the legal sphere. That means that we have the human dimension on le of legal interoperability that addresses the human-based activities like undertakings, behaviors, actions, and pursuits that develop and or support shared understanding and mutual trust with the ally, which is, of course, fundamental to developing a purpose, unity of effort, and reducing friction. And we also have the procedural dimension of legal interoperability, which addresses the processes and procedures that support and organize activities among allies to minimize confusion, misunderstandings and hesitation, and it builds on trust, purpose, and unity of effort. And uh, I will close again these elaborations now with the, the last, the third legal, legal interoperability dimension, the technical dimension of this, and it addresses the establishment of operation and maintenance of legal network hardware services and applications that support the exchange of data and information between allies. And I, I close now my, my findings with saying to all of our listeners, you don't need to memorize anything uh, specifically what I mentioned now. Um, only one thing is of the essence to have in mind, like always for lawyers. You don't have to know every rule by heart by heart, but simply remember that there are these great products from the Legal Center, the Handbook on Legal Interoperability and the Technical Smart Book on Legal Interoperability. Again, free to download from the website here. And um, there is everything you need, uh, like checklists and uh, really some very handy stuff. So if you Thank memorize you. that, that's already a big yeah. achievement. Leave it, leave it to lawyers to, to disagree about uh, the wording of, of written products. And I can imagine that that is multiplied, uh, multiplied exponentially when you look at products in different languages. And so uh, I come back to, to your quote uh, about the Oracle of saying, hey, know yourself, right? Uh, uh, but in this case, in, in multinational interoperability, the the self that you need to be aware of is a lot greater than what you're what you're used to, right? You're not just uh, you don't you no longer just need to be aware of your own country's laws and regulations, but you're aware of your partner and allies' laws and regulations too, and that can be daunting for a, a young legal advisor. Um, but understanding that that legal advisor is probably the the best equipped on that commander's staff uh, to handle these questions, uh, and, and helpful to know that there are products like you mentioned out there um, that can assist that 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 young legal. Advisor. Advisor. So, so thank you for walking us through it, um, Jason. Uh, I'll turn to you a little bit to to talk about you know does does your understanding definition of, of interoperability does it does it uh, 
sound very similar to Dr. Gancho's? And 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 if so, what have you seen uh, at JMRC to to train on, on interoperability? Has there been an increased focus on interoperability at JMRC? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I I one hundred percent agree with um, with Dr. Ganshaw's, uh recitation there. Um, it's important to know all of that as a base. Uh, but what I would say from my perspective at the tactical level, that while doctrine says there is no primary domain out of the human, technical, and procedural, as judge advocates interfacing with legal advisors, there is nothing more important to me, in my opinion, than the human um, domain. Uh, what I've seen is that if you develop those relationships with our allies and partners in the multinational force, uh, you'll be able to smooth out the friction points that arise in the procedural or the technical. Um, more than that, the human uh, domain allows you to build that common operating picture, that common visualization, uh, the trust that is necessary to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, we're getting ready to employ um, persistent anti-tank mines in this area. Um, is that an issue with your uh, with your you know um, national level laws, policies, and and uh, constraints? Um, and it's that communication that has to occur uh, in order for us to identify those procedural tech uh, procedural friction points that occur when we're interpreting uh, different treaty obligations in different countries' uh, laws. You know, from JMRC's perspective, I think we've been focused on interoperability for a long time. I mean, we're situated in the heart of, uh, of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization here in Germany. Um, we uh, focus heavily on NATO and partner interoperability. You know, the deterrence of, of foreign aggression. Um, we have three exercises per year that have um, you know, three to four thousand, uh, you know, partner and allied um, soldiers on the ground here. Uh, between the two combined resolve series rotations, we do a year for the regionally aligned forces that rotate through Germany um, as part of our uh, demonstrating a, a deterrence presence in in Europe. Um, but we also do uh, the Allied Spirit series of exercises, which is almost 100 uh, percent allies and partners. Uh, for this year's Allied Spirit, we had one U.S. battalion uh, and the rest of the forces, including a division CPX, two brigade CPXs, and then a live in the box unit um, were all Allied Can you take us through forces. Allied Spirit a little bit. Um, you know what? What does the what is JMRC's role in in, uh, in Allied Spirit, and 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 what is a senior legal OCT's role uh, as you look at that 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 multitude of uh, of international forces on the ground? Yeah. So Allied Spirit, um, it was a U.S. Army Europe and Africa directed Seventh uh, Army Training Command conducted. A joint multinational readiness center hosted large-scale combat operation exercise. Uh, the primary training audience for the exercise was a Latvian mechanized infantry brigade. They were also uh, they also are an enhanced forward presence brigade in the Baltics. Um, 
It was conducted from 10 January uh, 2022 to 5 February 2022. Um, you know, and obviously during that time there were um, some activities going on to our east that created a heightened presence and awareness to um, how important and impactful this exercise would be. Uh, it also shaped the mentality of some of our um, forces with respect to the application of law of armed conflict um, in the exercise. Uh, it was developed, uh, you know, it was designed to develop and enhance NATO and partner interoperability and readiness, uh, focusing on large scale combat operations. We trained 6,246 soldiers from 15 countries including Germany, Hungary, Italy, Kosovo, Latvia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Moldova, Poland, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, the United Kingdom, uh, and the United States. The secondary training audiences included the Dutch 43rd Mechanized Infantry Brigade doing a CPX, the U.S. 1st Air Cavalry Brigade conducting a CPX, and the Italian 132nd Armored Brigade conducting a CPX, and all of these forces were under the command and control of the German Army's 1st Armored Division, who were also uh, conducting a CPX. What's interesting about this, and, and again, I didn't know this until I became an OC at JMRC, is that there's a combined uh, German-Dutch Corps. Uh, the, it's the first German-Netherlands Corps, so the 43rd Mechanized Infantry Brigade of the Dutch Army actually belongs to this First German Netherlands Corps, and the division in that corps is the German First Armored Division. So it's really interesting to see how they got to come here to JMRC to exercise their uh, habitual command and control uh, relationship, um, even though they're from two different uh, two different countries. You know, the mission of this exercise um, was uh, a near peer force uh, in our exercise design. That's the Skolkin Alliance. Uh, the Skolkin Alliance had already invaded and was occupying the territory of multiple NATO, neighboring NATO nations, uh, and the North Atlantic. Um, Council had invoked Article 5, the Common Defense Article of the NATO Treaty. As a senior you know, legal OCT, um, you know, I started early uh, because, you know, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I believe that human relationships are the most important thing that, that we can do when we're trying to bring a force together. Um, so we had multiple teams calls leading up to the exercise uh, where we we just discussed things like the anti-personnel mine ban treaty or the convention on cluster munitions. We discussed how we interpret it. I sent out a draft um, copy of the rules of engagement for, for comment. Uh, and then we went through and we actually worked to, to um, change some of the US-based thinking to a more NATO-based um, process. Uh, the, the Dutch were very influential in that, and they they participated like a two-hour call where we just went line by line on on the ROE to do you know really the Dutch um, uh, were very adamant in the coin hangover <laughs> as well. They said this uh, uh, Major Barry Hodemaker said, Jason, this isn't coin anymore. Uh, we have to have a, a real war fighting ROE here. So um, so we took that that seriously um, and it was a breath of fresh air to, to get everyone on the same page. Um, one of the things that I found was was very interesting um, and I never even thought about it until 
till Major Hodemaker, who's an observer, trainer, evaluator at the Land Training Center, so my counterpart in, in the Netherlands, he said, um, you know, Jason, we, we don't have anything like your DOD Law of War manual uh, in the Netherlands. I just kind of have to figure it out. Um, you know, for us, the, the DOD Law of War manual is a very um, exceptional uh, work. Um, it provides us detailed um, guidance on how the Department of Defense views the application of the law of armed conflict in combat. Um, and so it, to not, you know, it just kind of took me aback to, to realize that some of our, our partners and allies don't have a similar kind of product or a similar, similar repository where they can go to quickly gain uh, their country's view on uh, a certain aspect of of the law of armed conflict. Um, so, you know, again, just just really interesting points, and um, I have a ton more <laughs> interesting points I could share on legal interoperability. But I'll yield back some time to you well, uh, for additional uh, Dr. questions. Dr. Gancho, can you just talk a little bit because you were involved a bit in Allied Spirit as well, right? Yeah. And, and could you talk a bit about yeah, just right. your role in uh, in Allied Spirit? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, as a member of the Center for Law and Military Operations here at the Legal Center, uh, I was there as a military exercise observer, and I observed uh, the four lines of efforts, particularly for CLEMO, the support of legal advisors to military operations by training education, collecting and sharing lessons learned, publishing legal resources, and facilitating multinational legal interoperability. And uh, I was also there as an augmentee to the exercise and mostly supported Jason's OCT and mentored the German legal advisors in the division staff with their command post exercise. And uh, I would also like to share some lessons observed on interoperability generally there because um, I 100% agree with Jason that the human domain is the most important one for interoperability. And I must say that um, Jason's OCT did an awesome job by preparing early for that exercise. I think 120 days in advance, he set up the first preparatory meeting with all the legal advisors of the various nations he already mentioned involved and um, made sure that there was a synchronized battle rhythm for the legal community with daily synchronization meetings and uh, a common database at the All Partners Alliance Network, APAN, and that there was also a point of contact uh, for every function from the G1 to G9 to which the uh, legal advisors could turn to, to get topical information. And what, what I found interesting was that we, have, we, are, we are so accustomed to a sophisticated digital environment uh, with counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations that uh, to learn again to work in an austere environment with non-digital legal tools simply because they are gone, destroyed, or we cannot use them because otherwise the enemy would uh, know where we are and just shell us. Um, it's important to, to work with uh, non-digital legal tools again and um, yeah, to, to simply also help yourself with, with what you've got in your brain and with what you can carry in your backpack as a legal advisor. And what I particularly found interesting, you, you notice uh, my, my clumsiness with the English language sometimes, but um, the language barrier 
yeah, it is there. So uh, simple tools like a short summary after every legal briefing in the legal community so that everybody is really reading from the same page and have a conclusion in writing to everyone after an important meeting, that really helps a lot. And what I also saw uh, when I observed legal interoperability, and we, we come to the specifics in the later episodes, I guess, but um, just on the surface to make sure everybody's aware of these findings, um, that to be proactive towards the military commander is of the essence. So you really need to gain the trust for your commander very fast that you are his legal mission enabler and his legal firewall, that you are the subject matter expert, you know the law and the rules of engagement, and that you are confident and 100% sure in your legal advice. So we have to take extreme ownership of our legal function Otherwise, um, that will lead to failures within the staff and that could, in the worst case, result in, well, operational misadvantage. And uh, I found it very helpful to have legal flowcharts and um, I think you Americans call it legal baseball cards or so. In German, it would be the Fauler Knecht. So that is simply a big book where you can turn to in the night when um, you need to know, okay, we have uh, incident X, now we have to act like Z. So that was very helpful. And last finding I, I wanna share is that, yeah, with, with the human dimension being the most important for legal interoperability, it's important to build networks very fast, to build relationships very fast. And of course, that always depends on the personalities involved and on the overall circumstances, but yes, we will see in the following episodes where we talk about some technical legal aspects of working in a multinational military environment as well as about some operational law challenges Thanks, to Dr. the legal Gancho. advisor First of all, your there. English is amazing, so don't sell yourself short. Second of all, Jason, uh, additional lessons learned or observations from your end uh, specifically related to Allied Spirit? Yeah, you know, I just want to echo, um, again, the human relationships. And if you, you know, we were fortunate because this was an exercise, we knew about it well in advance. So we were able to plan um, to use, you know, digital technology that allowed us to see each other's faces. And then we also came together in person the first day that every legal advisor was on Hohenfels together. Um, I, there's, there's just no substitute for being able to see someone's face when you're trying to build trust. Uh, and so to the extent you can get out and meet um, your adjacent or higher headquarters uh, legal advisors from uh, different countries, um, when you get out into a real fight, I, I highly suggest that you take the opportunity because it will pay returns on the backside um, when you're calling up on short notice for, hey, X happened. Um, you know, for lesson, additional lessons learned, I, I'm not going to, I think, as Dr. Ganshaw mentioned, I think in later series, we'll get more into the specific lessons of Allied Spirit. So I want to avoid touching on that. But there are some good documents out there. So for judge advocates that are getting ready to go into multinational operations, I would recommend getting on the Center for Army Lessons Learned website and pulling down some of their documents. I would recommend um, 
getting into uh, some of the NATO stay nags on interoperability. And then as Dr. Ganchow mentioned, the JAG uh, school um, and legal center has the multinational inter or the legal interoperability handbook, um, which is a really good document. Uh, you know, just overall lessons, um, you know, as a judge advocate going into a brigade combat team's planning process, uh, and you're sitting there as the staff is trying to plan for this, um, I really have five fundamentals uh, that they need to look out for in that planning process. One, effective LNO packages. Um, you know, don't hesitate standing up in the back of the room uh, if the brigade is suggesting that they're going to send the captain who has nothing else to do uh, to the multinational uh, unit uh, as your LNO package, because you're going to fail if you do that. Um, so again, speak up if you see that happening. Understand their capabilities, and this is important for a judge advocate as well. Um, do what we call a petting zoo. You know, pull all of the um, machines, you know, the, the tanks, the infantry fighting vehicles, um, the ATVs, uh, whatever your partner ally has, like pull images of those. And to the extent possible, get your units down to physically see them. That will help prevent fratricide um, by your unit and their units on the backside. If, if you, the units to your left and right know what um, what equipment you're operating uh, looks like. Uh, you know, detailed preparation, as Dr. Ganshaw mentioned, um, that we did over here. I mean, we took the ROE and we went line by line uh, with our partners to ensure that we had common understanding. Uh, you know, create standard operating procedures. Again, uh, Dr. Ganshaw mentioned this. You know, if you have shared battle drills across the legal sections um, to where you know what steps are supposed to be taken if you uncover a law of armed conflict violation or you have fratricide, um, then that will make things easier. Step one, call adjacent unit. Let them know that you're shooting into their area. <laughs> Step two, ceasefire. <laughs> Maybe that's backwards, right? Step one should be ceasefire. Um, you know, so just share those operating procedures so everyone's on the same page. Um, and, and finally, it's going to sound extremely re repetitive here, but a common operating picture. I think all of the previous ones were, were building into this. Um, you, you really have to know, um, you, you know, what your units to your left and right are doing, so you have uh, shared understanding. Um, you reduce miscommunication, fratricide, and you can effectively integrate fires uh, into a mutually supporting um, role. So those those are kind of the five fundamentals for interoperability success as a whole, not specifically um, tied to legal. Uh, for legal, it's again, human relationships. I can't beat that enough um, because if you're able to effectively communicate with your partner, um, you can call them up and you can understand what their interpretation is of a specific treaty. Um, uh, again, Dr. Ganchow mentioned this, but just understanding some of the cultural aspects, um, I think, you know, I tend to be a pretty aggressive brigade judge advocate. I'm going to be, um, my motto is find problems and solve problems. So if I'm in a brigade command post, I'm I'm in all the planning meetings. I'm in co-ops. I'm looking for what could go wrong and how can I prevent it from going wrong um, before it happens. But not everyone is like that. Not all of our um, 
partners and allies are structured in a way where we empower, where judge advocates are empowered like they are in the United States um, Army. So, you know, are they in a proactive role or are they in a reactive role? If they're in a reactive role, that may explain why when you're sending up the RFIs or the ROE, e-change requests to division headquarters through legal channels only, you're not getting a response or you're not successfully changing the ROE. And that's because, you know, it has to go through operational channels. The operations will drive the lawyers at the, you know, in the reactive cells to seek change. Whereas in, in the U.S. Army, we can do a lot of stuff through legal only channels because you send it up to the next higher level and they have proactive lawyers up there too who are going to go talk to the ops guys and say, hey, let's let's do this. I mean, technically the correct answer is everything's supposed to go through the ops channel anyways, but, um, you know, and then uh, um, kind of finally uh, for, for us as legal interoperability going in, um, you know, human relationships, um, the procedural that I just mentioned, but then, uh, the, or the proactive reactive, but then the planning. Um, I think a lot of legal interoperability issues could be resolved before we ever get into the fight if the lawyers are heavily involved in the planning process. And one aspect specifically that, I mean, frankly, before I took this job, I didn't pay much attention to. And that's when the three and the commander and maybe some of the subordinate units are getting together and they're figuring out how they're going to put this task force together. What does the task organization and the C2 relationship look like? Um, for this organization. Normally, I'm like, okay, it's all about aligning combat power to, to try to achieve some kind of objective. I look at it through a completely different light now, and we'll address this in later episodes, so maybe this can be a teaser. But, you know, if you put a, um, a field artillery battalion that from a country that is a signatory to the Convention on Cluster Munitions in a task organization for a unit that heavily relies on using cluster munitions, you've now created a problem where a problem did not need to exist. Um, so if you can just think about some of those um, treaty obligations and then how, like for example, in the fires process, how a fires mission gets processed internal to a brigade size task force, you might be able to alleviate that by saying, hey, wait a minute, is there someplace else we can put this battalion in a, in a sister unit where it won't create problems for our field artillery batteries who, who rely on Jason, shooting those munitions? thank you. Thanks for talking through Allied Spirit, uh, legal interoperability. Um, Dr. Gantrow, if you'd like to just kind of finish on, on a note, you know, we've covered this throughout the episode. I think it's been apparent throughout the episode, but 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 a final note from, from your, on, your end, just the importance of legal interoperability from, from your perspective. Yeah, great. Major Kwan, that is very good that um, you give me the opportunity to, to emphasize this at the end now, because we've talked about interoperability, about legal interoperability, and everybody has now a probably more or less clear picture about what is it, or at least could read more about it in the mentioned sources. But let me now also say why I deem it important, and I don't say that only here uh, from my personal capacity, having um, for many years now um, advised commanders on various levels on operational law and um, always touched with uh, interoperability. 
lately I observed uh, the large-scale combat operation exercise Allied Spirit 22 and prior to that the NATO strategic exercise Steadfast Jupiter 21 with the Joint Warfare Center in Norway. And uh, what I can say, well, is now that I, I could deliver a summary of the previous elaborations here in this podcast using some doctrinal jargon and sophisticated legal wording, but I would like to approach this in the last three minutes a little bit differently now and indeed delivering my personal opinion as action officer for multinational operations and interoperability with Claymo here. So in a nutshell, and also to condense what I just said, uh, the multinational legal interoperability is important because in a large-scale combat operation surrounding where constantly you would think the future of the nation or at least the survival of your commander's formation is at stake, and where decisions are being made that lead to vast destruction of property and human lives, well, there an alliance cannot afford making mistakes that stem from an insufficiently interoperable legal function within its armed forces. The international legal community is tasked to fulfill their, in Article 82, Additional Protocol 1, of 1977 articulated civilizatory role as a guarantor of the law of armed conflict when we advise military commanders as legal advisors. And in my opinion here, we, we cannot succeed if we neglect the legal interoperability puzzle piece that forms a part of the legal battlefield. Because at best, a lack of multinational legal interoperability can lead to a lack of understanding and cohesion but at worst, it can lead to an underperforming legal advisor cell within then having an advantage for enemy military operations and enemy legal operations, which are there. We see that in Ukraine, but that's a different topic. And with NATO's increased focus on collective defense and interoperability for the legal advisor community at NATO's eastern flank, this seems to be today more important than ever. So this legal interoperability is also the only starting point from which our profession can expect to successfully organize and enforce the unity of military operations and law in the 21st century international armed conflicts. And in international armed conflicts, the law of armed conflict forms the common threat and shared language, even or rather particularly with the enemy. So legal advisors are, in that respect, connective tissue, civilizatory thought, and they are the connecting files on the legal battlefield. So trivial as this finding may seem to be, without embracing this, in a multinational alliance, large-scale combat operations, the various legal advisor cells in the area of operations would hardly be more than I don't know, islands in a fog of war, clouded sea of chaos, once large formations clash with hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and probably they will never come to be the whole that is more than the sum of its parts. So we want to get multinational legal interoperability into the legal field manuals, particularly in operational law handbooks of allied forces. And yeah, 
that is what we are working Gentlemen, on here with Claymore. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for, for taking the time today to, to give us an introduction to interoperability, uh, what it is, different perspectives on, on, on what it is, how we get to a common operating picture, and then how we train and how we train multinational forces in general and how we train more specifically in interoperability and legal interoperability. Uh, I'm excited for what this series can bring. I think uh, uh, over the course of the next few months, uh, we'll be diving into additional topics. Uh, you've heard mention of means of warfare, whether that's cluster munitions or, or, or landmines uh, or riot control agents and, and how uh, the use of those can vary from country to country. Uh, the use of irre irregular forces, uh, self-defense and the use of force, uh, that is something that I've found the definition of self-defense and the uh, parameters of self-defense vary wildly from country to country. Um, those are going to be some of the episodes we continue to tackle over the next few months, and we'll, we'll continue to have uh, Dr. Gancho, Major Young, and uh, additional experts coming out of uh, JMRC. But gentlemen, thank you both. Thanks both for, for taking the time. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Interested in providing material to the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate? Reach out to us via Twitter or LinkedIn at JAGFCD. That's J-A-G-F-C-D or visit our website at tjaglix.army.mil. We are always on the lookout for the next guests, topic, or discussion. As always, the views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Reference in this episode to any specific commercial product, process, or service, or the use of any trade, firm, or corporation name is for the information and convenience of the public and does not constitute endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the Department of Defense. For the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate, I am Major Justin Command. Thanks for joining us on Battlefield Next.